My guest in this episode is New York-based Kane Dowsett, who has been the Head of Brand, Communications and Marketing Americas for Clifford Chance since the beginning of 2020. Prior to this, he was with Clifford Chance in Hong Kong for four and a half years, having moved there from Melbourne, where he was the Communications Manager for a national law firm, Maddox. Before working in law, he had a successful career with the global engineering firm GHD, which he joined whilst working in the Middle East. This impressive international career started in event management and sports marketing for major brands such as Formula One Grand Prix and Australian Open. He is a passionate advocate for LGBTIQ equality and has created many innovative events to support pride in the legal profession and beyond. When I first interviewed him, For the Maddox job in 2013, my notes described him as energetic and creative, and I wrote, he will go far. How much further will he go? Let's dive in and find out. Welcome to the podcast, Kane. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so much. I'm almost tearing up. That's, uh, yeah, that's a nice summary. Now, we're obviously going to dive in deep later to discuss the sort of many journeys your career and indeed you have had. But let's start at the very beginning. You studied an advanced diploma in sports recreation management. What did you want to be? I, to be very honest with you, I'll be very frank. Uh, as you know, I wanted to be a tennis player growing up, a professional tennis player. Okay. I was never as good as I should have been for how much I trained and played and practiced and all of those things. Mm-hmm. So what was your first real job then? My first real job, that is a great question. That's open to interpretation, that question. So I, uh, I worked in my parents' pet supplies business growing up. Uh, yes. uh, I worked in a couple of sports stores, so fitting and selling shoes to people and sports clothes and that sort of thing. Loved the discounts there. Mm-hmm. Um, my first real job coming out of uh, university I worked for an events company called Camp Australia. Mm. Now, you were in Melbourne at this time, and it says on your CV that during your job doing these events, you went to the Middle East. Talk to us about how that came about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I grew up south of Melbourne, down on the Mornington Peninsula. And, uh, yeah, when I sort of made the, the foray into events work, obviously events are all over. And um, following my time at Camp Australia, I actually joined a company called Clean Event. Mm-hmm. Um, they have been since acquired by Spotless, I believe, and they did event management and venue management for major events. And that's what took me over to the Middle East. So I'd been with them for, I believe, about a year or so and working in major events in Australia, including for the Formula One Grand Prix, the Spring Racing Carnival uh, with the VRC and even, you know, the ECA, the Brisbane show, if you've heard of it. Mm. Um, So it was by no means sort of glamorous. And I remember one day walking into my office and our COO at the time uh, yelled out from his office, do you speak Arabic? And I said to him, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me? He's like, do you speak Arabic? I said, oh, I, I don't. No, I, I'm sorry. Why do you ask me that? And he said, oh, well, because we've just won a contract for the Doha Asian Games and we need to mobilize the team over there immediately and I would like you to go. Mm-hmm. And that is, I guess, the rest is history, as they say. So about a month or so after, I terminated my lease and moved over for what was to be a 14-month contract. Mm-hmm. And the kind of transient nature of that company so they assemble events teams that travel around the world basically and follow different events around the world 
And after the Asian Games, uh, they'd won the contract for the World Cup cricket in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. So I almost took that approach. Now, personally, at that time, my partner moved over to the Middle East with me and the firm was really supportive of that, which was incredible. If you think back, that was 2004. Mm. So, you know, very different time to what we live in now. Mm. And yeah, they they moved us over there together and we liked it so much, believe it or not, living in the desert in Doha <laughs> that we decided, no, you know what, we're going to give it a shot. So we, we both uh, pursued opportunities with local companies, local events companies. Right. And and during that time, you did various things. So you did some public relations, you did events, as you described, some luxury brand marketing, all sounds very glamorous. And then you joined the engineering firm GHD. I mean, was it the glamour of that sector, perhaps, that interested you, Kane? I mean, obviously, I sense the sarcasm there, Graham, but to be <laughs> honest with you, think of that time. So we're talking about so 2005 to 2010. That was the height of the construction boom in the Middle East. So things like the Burj, uh, the Palm, the World Islands, uh, and they were all being developed. So there was a lot of activity there. Now, yeah, that very luxurious element of, of what we did. Um, so my partner and I actually started up a PR firm and we were basically a way for us to get free holidays. So we did contra deal PR work for um, for brands like the Six Senses and the hotels and resorts. And, and that was a really great opportunity. And over that time, while I was working in Doha, I was working for a local events company, um, more in the conferences space. And of course, I gravitated back to sports and recreation. I conceptualized a health exhibition and we had the local hospitals sponsor it and, and um, sporting supplies and those sorts of things. So I was really finding my groove um, yeah. and, and blending in those elements of event management. Um, and, and you know me personally, I'm forensic about details and that's really useful when you're in events um and then from there we you know we were living our lives and i started playing tennis again and i was playing tennis just regularly through ex- through the expat community now i'd been in events logistics and management and and those sorts of things and when you get into that type of role it's kind of a hold all so i would end up you know, if there were a crisis situation on site or if there were, uh, if there was a need to uh, go aggressively recruit employees or design the uniforms for, you know, the court cleaners at the tennis or that sort of thing, you fall into that. And I was articulating that to David and he's like, yeah, come in. And I was thought, sure, sure enough, I'll do so. And uh, I went into the office and it was the office of GHD and very quickly I understood that David was the Middle East director for the firm. He'd been with the firm for 30 years and and you would never know it, right? Just your usual Aussie guy. We played tennis, didn't really do much other than that. And um, again, as I say, the rest is history. I sat down and I had a job offer within the next couple of days, I think it was. And that really opened the door for me to, I guess it's a more polished version of what I was doing previously because you work in a corporate. Um, did you think when you joined GHD that you would be there for six years? Well, at that age, probably not. I mean, my history, as I said, I was with Camp Australia for a number of years. Now, this is where I aged myself. I think it was four years or so. Uh, I was with Clean Event for a sort of an equivalent time. And joining GHD, I saw it as a means to stay and stay with permanency 
Um, mm-hmm. Another topic I'm sure we could talk about, but you know, a lot of people in events and in, in these types of roles move around and do contracts. And I've always really found the appeal of, of security uh, very important to me. I was lucky enough to spend the time there uh, over that period, but then an opportunity came up for me to move into a global role. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually did my following three years back in Australia in a global role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I look at them as little sort of individual jobs, but the mm-hmm. tenure at the firm, absolutely not. Would mm-hmm. I want, as an events professional, as I marketed myself, would I want to be in an engineering firm <laughs> for six years? Probably not, but they really did work with some some really cool things and projects and um, also wonderful people. Absolutely mm. love it. I'm in very close contact with the team at GHD still, but they are going gangbusters. I'm taking our first deep dive here to reflect on several things. Firstly, it's nice how tennis, whilst not his ultimate career, did actually play a major part in his career. And one shouldn't underestimate how important hobbies and sporting activities can be in forging relationships that can positively affect your working life. Secondly, we've heard often in this series that being overseas offers opportunities that you might not consider on home turf. There's something quite freeing about living in another country and having to consider alternative ways of earning money, which can, like in Kane's case, lead to a highly successful career. Back to the interview. So when you got back to Australia, you did three years with them, you were promoted into a global role, and then you decided to join a national law firm. What did you see that move offering you at that time? That is a, it's a great question. I think on that point of tenure, when I was a GHD, um, I felt like the role itself was no longer provide no longer providing me with an opportunities or challenge. I was really truly embedded and settled, and we were doing great things, and I was working with great people. But I remember, and you'll remember this certainly when we met. I remember just thinking to myself, like, I want to do more, and and I want to be able to do more, and I want to be stretched, and I don't want the challenges of my job to be purely resourcing and time in the day and volume of work I want to be challenged and stretched Mm -hmm. and um, that was an important thing and I remember you said to me Graham and we spoke very frankly and you you know what's an old description of the legal industry it's very demanding you said to me you know let's the elephant in the room obviously the legal profession will pay uh, more highly than engineering just on as a generalization so tick there's an appeal it's generally a little fancier in terms of workspace and, and the perks and the, and the benefits. Okay, T- check, tick. Um, extremely demanding internal clients. And you have to be, you know, that attention to detail is absolutely critical because uh, lawyers are technically, well, they're trained to be, to pick fault in things and to debate. And that is the difference between engineering and law mm-hmm. and therein lie the challenge. And I was, yeah, I was on board, uh, as you know. And again, I'll say it again, the rest is history. The rest is history because after that, you you went to Hong Kong with one of the biggest law firms in the world where you now are Clifford Chance. And, and we know that that was not the first time working and living overseas. But can you remember at the time, did you see that as a stint or did you know that you were going to continue to travel around the world? I think intuitively, I probably did know um, that joining a global firm would provide opportunity, and I think that is one of one of the things. And I will say as well, as a 
kind of point of juncture. There's no shame in not wanting to travel and not wanting to grow. And if you find your niche and you're good at it and you love who you, who you work with in the work that you do, go for it. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a constant sort of thinking about what's next uh, while still kind of being present. And I think the discussions that we had, and, and we'll get a little deep here, and you know, I had some personal, so my ex that I had spoken of previously, um, that relationship sort of fizzled, fizzled out. So I had an opportunity where I wasn't tethered or tied to a location. And that was an important thing because I truly believe, and you said this to me, Graham, if you're going to take on this role, it's huge. It's a great firm. There's a lot of opportunity, but you, you're going to have to work. When I went to London to induction, um, within a couple of weeks of getting to Clifford Chance in Hong Kong, and um, I turned up at Canary Wharf and I was like, where's the Clifford Chance building? And or where are the floors for Clifford Chance? I'm like, no, it's the whole building. There's 3,000 <laughs> people here. Yeah. That is when you kind of understand, okay, I'm part of something pretty big. Yeah. And I want to ask you a question about when you worked for GHD, it was a global firm and you were in brand communications and now you're at Clifford Chance and you started in Hong Kong and now you're in New York. What is the difference marketing the same brand in different locations? I mean, is there a difference? What are the nuances that you can tell us about? You know, I discuss this with my peers because we are a global team, but I discuss it with them regularly. And it's often, you know, not the most pleasant conversations because what we're doing is negotiating campaign terms. Um, and what it boils down to, to be to be very frank, when you're in marketing, so first and foremost, we'll get this, my view is polarizing. Um Internal communication, external communication, campaign work, digital, PR, all of the aspects of of, um, external communications and internal, it's all the same thing. So Mm -hmm. it's all marketing. So it's about understanding and segmenting your audience and then delivering your message through the right channels, right? And the difference between Asia Pacific and working for the firm in London or in the US is the baseline is brand awareness um, Mm -hmm. and how receptive your audience is and how much knowledge they have of Mm -hmm. of who you are and what you do. And that's a big thing. So if I look at my remit with the firm across Asia Pacific, there was eight offices or 10 offices at the time. We downsized a little. The brand for Clifford Chance in Hong Kong, they are the number one first to mind when when people talk about international law, law firms. Go to Perth. You know, we have 12 attorneys, let's just say we did in 2015. Very different perspective. And in terms of media and promoting the brand, there is there is an element of actually getting on people's radar in order to, you know, push them through the sales pipe or the recruitment pipe or whatever your objective is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a that's something that you can almost take for granted. So as I said, Hong, being in Hong Kong for more than 40 years, there was less work to do in terms of that groundwork on brand recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I mention this is because it all stems back to your people. So our attorneys in Hong Kong, far more adept at speaking about the firm and talking about the global network, uh, as they would be when compared to those in Australia, because they, the Australian presence was the result of a merger. And it was almost like we need to go back to basics and understand who we are mm. and where does that connect with the global brand as well. Mm. And then 
I move and very different situation now in Australia. They are doing so well and they are, you know, it's a new generation there, which is really quite exceptional to see. But then you move over to the Americas, which I've moved here and I've come out of four and a half years of, okay, we're at the top of the market. This is great. We have the uh, malleability to be creative and try different things to, oh yeah, we're one of a couple of hundred firms and we're maybe the 170th largest in New York, one of the, you know, one of the, well, the largest legal market in the world. Mm. And it's a very different proposition. So mm. it goes back to your people and, and being able to train your people and have them understand what it is they are, what's their purpose, what do they want to be known for? And also, you know, pushing and shoving a little bit to make sure that what they are doing and saying reflects what the brand values and, um, and promotes globally. That was a great answer and a good reminder to anyone working on brand communications with a business that has different markets and or different locations. I like it when he brings it back to people and particularly in helping them to understand their purpose and the overall strategic positioning of the brand. Marketing can often be viewed as the poor relation to business development in the legal profession. I mean, how have you elevated the role that you play to demonstrate return on investment? I think it comes down to a very simple equation, and that is measurement. We are so lucky now, if I think back and, you know, we've done a little trip down memory lane, the digitization of marketing and the access to analytics is unbelievable compared to when I first entered the industry. Mm-hmm. And that can be a double-edged sword because you're, you're, you're more accountable for what you do. And as marketers, we always struggle to get those tangible results. So how many marketers can tell you, well, we won a mandate for 500,000 US dollars based on XYZ campaign. Generally, what we do is around profile building. And that is really hard to measure. There are brand indexes, there is research that's done, but it is all kind of subjective and you have to be able to sell it. Like you have to be able to spin and sell your your measurement and your results. Mm -hmm. And the easiest thing that I think that people can, so people either entering the profession or looking to demonstrate their value, you know, as partners, so we'll, we'll just switch into sort of the internal clients. Our internal clients are our partners. Now, these partners, they don't know what they don't know. So to be able to come to them with the analytics, um, it's a really, really powerful thing. And I think that's that's really what's changed. The second point is really important. I've been having this discussion so frequently. Yes, we're seen as the poor cousin to BD, but there is no marketing without BD. So your business development teams, they own the client insight. They know who the clients are. They know the business plans. And they know who we want to target. Our job as marketers to be the conduit to that mm-hmm. and to offer that guidance and advice and then the feedback. And it's also okay to fail. That's that's the important thing as well. So mm-hmm. we ran subsequent, or we run we run concurrent campaigns recently where we're foraying into paid advertising in terms of social media. Uh, I'm not sharing any any secrets of the firm. I'm just saying we, you know, we've run some paid campaigns and to be able to look at the the heightened activity and engagement you can get from actually segmenting and targeting and paying for LinkedIn to do that work for you, for example, with a campaign, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, we've just run con- concurrent campaigns and the results could not be any more 
different mm. uh, for both of those. One of them is on one side is exceptional, and that is around a bit of thought leadership. The other one was promoting an event and uh, not so great in terms of the feedback. But, you know, we are very frank and we've worked closely with our partners to, to explain what we're learning from all of this. And that in itself is incredibly valuable. And, and your gauge for if you're making traction in that space is the demand you generate. So if I can have a partner or a legal team come to me from a practice area and say, we want to put a campaign together, can you organize a vanity URL for our campaign? That is success in itself because that certainly is not something that that attorneys learn in uh, in law school. <laughs> now you you were very successful in in Hong Kong. I remember you you ran a small team there. You sort of you, you understood the press there. You you knew Hong Kong like the back of your hand from an event perspective. So you were pretty comfortable in your skin. I think in that job. Why move to New York? So you know, Graham the the personal or the, the honest to God truth story about the move, I, I moved for love. And so I booked this trip over to New York and I was seeing, actually meeting up with some friends that I knew from GHD that had moved there, which was really cool. And uh, yeah, and I turned up and I I met my partner on the second day I was in New York, actually. And we'll spare you the details. It was a friend taking my phone and it was a tinder swipe and it was a meet up for a drink etc etc holiday romance and then over the following months i began looking at flights regularly every day and thinking when can we get back to new york what can i do and the benefit of working with a global firm a lot of flexibility and certainly um didn't didn't hurt that we had offices over here as well so over the uh the following years Every couple of months, I would head over and I would, um, you know, work from the office here and kind of work uh, on sort of twenty-four hour schedule. Let's just say mm. uh, to accommodate for time zones. And I started seeding in um, the benefits of of what I can provide into the US team over here. So it was no accident that I found myself starting to deliver digital profile and social media training to the attorneys when I was in town. And people liked that because it's an international guest for, you know, for, for what of a better term. Uh, and then I just started working more closely with, uh, with the comms team over here and seeing where there are opportunities to sort of cross sell out, sell our Asia pack services and, and promote the U S qualified network across Asia. And then, yeah, over a couple of uh, over a couple of years, we got to a point where I was able to move. I, I do want to make a point that's just come to to mind, and it was a bit of advice that I was given. You know, I was looking at opportunities. I met with a number of firms over here um, whilst I was uh, whilst I was working and and, and long distance uh, relationship with my partner Michael, and it never really stuck with me. Uh, with any of the teams that I met, that, that it was a group that I wanted to work with and I could see a future with because I think the firm, uh, Clifford Chance, like we really do uh, walk the walk. Uh, if you talk about culture and collegiality, it's just a great group of people. Um, but I wanted to make the point because I'd, I'd become increasingly frustrated that there were no opportunities coming up within the firm. And, uh, you know, it's a London headquartered firm traditionally. Uh, and there were, there were global roles coming up and there was a reluctance, I felt, to post and position those roles anywhere outside of the UK. Mm -hmm. And 
Uh, no offense to any UK listeners, that's not where I wanted to be. And I've seen that change as yeah. well. So mm. that's certainly changed, in particular within our firm now. We have a huge range of people um, from all over the world in leadership positions, which is great. Mm. But the the point that I wanted to make was I became increasingly frustrated and to the point that one day I walked in and spoke to my boss and said, you know, if I can't get an opportunity over in New York, I'm just, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave the firm and I don't want to. And she turned to me and she said, well, when do you want to move? And I said, well, you know what? And, you know, uh, throw my dummy out of the pram and like, I need to have her all over there before the end of the year or I'm going to leave. Now, in my mind, I'm like, I'm not leaving. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to keep it going, going to keep it going. And uh, she said to me, you've never articulated that. So the bit of advice is when you're faced with a situation where you're feeling a little frustrated, ask yourself the very honest question, have you actually had the conversation that you think you have in your mind? Because I played it up and I think, Graham, we'd spoken a number of times and I was like, dude, you got to help me out here. Get, you know, <laughs> have you got any references in New York? I need help. And, uh, and you had said to me, you know, have you made, have you been clear? And it is about people that know me would suggest I don't lack confidence, but I certainly, there was something there that stopped me from, from sort of putting, uh, you know, from valuing what I, or thinking about what I add in terms of value to the firm and, and, and staking my claim and saying, well, if, if I'm that worth it, let's look at this. And, you know, we did a lot of work to sell in the role and yeah, we needed, we're boosting our profile here. We're growing. It's the largest legal market in the world. Um, it was a great fit in the end and it worked out again. We'll go back to it. The rest is history, but uh, yeah, we're only three years into that history. I'm so glad Kane told us this story because at Selden Rosser, we often counsel candidates into staying with their firms. Letting your key stakeholders know what is happening in your life that might be affecting your job satisfaction or ability to do the job as well as you can allows your employer the opportunity to help. You do need to go into the conversation understanding that compromises might need to be made or that time might need to be taken to help achieve the right outcome. But like in this case, transparency and trust can often lead to even better outcomes than you envisaged. You're, you're a big advocate for LGBTIQ equality um, in the legal profession. I remember when you were in Asia, you were very, you were at the forefront of, um, you know, really helping Clifford Chance promote events in, in, in that market, which was a very difficult market at the time. And, and, and now in New York, you've done similar, I, I see on LinkedIn, you've done similar events there. Well, why is it so important, do you think, both for you professionally, but also in the legal profession to be really big advocates of, of um, equality in that way? Well, I think that, as I said, walking the walk is important and, and we see the benefits of inclusion and the benefits of diversity in everything that we do. You know, you can walk into any, let's call it a creative brainstorming session or a strategy meeting. The more diverse people around the table and diversity of thought that you can bring to those discussions, the better. So that is the first and foremost um, for me. And it's, you know, there's a, there's a business imperative um, to be an advocate and to really, uh, I think I used the term before that um, partners don't know what they don't know. Well, the same can be said, like you can't be what you can't see. And so having those 
visible leaders and visible advocates is incredibly useful um, for, for people entering the firm, entering the workforce, uh, and for people that are that are existing. And I think it's increasingly important professionally. So it's part and parcel of what we promote as a firm. So as a comms slash marketing slash brand manager, of course, it's part of our identity. So it's a, and it's a really nice thing as well. It's one mm. of the softer side of things. Mm. Um, that's incredibly important. But for me, you know, I have a, a quick story that I've reflected to a number of people, you know, as it relates to Arcus, I came on board at the firm and, you know, as part of my comms manager role, I was brought into a discussion for the diversity committee in Hong Kong. And um, I had a partner, I walked in and the partner said to me, oh, can I, can I ask you a question? Um, we have a distribution list for Arcus, which is the LGBTQI uh, network in the firm. Um, and we have a distribution list for Arcus allies. Now, which one can I, can I put you on? And inadvertently, I felt like he was asking me if I was gay or not, but I couldn't be sure. And I, of course, played straight and said, pardon the pun, and said, uh, put me on both. I need to be aware of what's going on. And that was my way of really not outing myself at work. Mm. Now I reflect on that. That's really sad. That mm. was really sad time for me. And I was 35 at the time and, um, you know, had been in a, in a relationship uh, publicly, et cetera, and lived in the Middle East, mind you, with my partner. I mm. remember the first Pride Art exhibition that I assisted with, the first year I was with the firm, the day after the event, and of course, I went in there and went crazy on the event planning, and it looked incredible, and it was engaging, and it was a real party. Um, the next morning, one of our junior attorneys, uh, Chinese attorneys, came to me and said, I never knew this sort of thing existed within our firm. I just want to thank you so much. And it, it really, that got me. Talk about get you right in the chest. And I was like, wow, that is a way for me. I'm using my skills to benefit others. Now, I've never been the out and proud uh, pride marcher, anything like that, but it really hit me that you can, you don't have to be that. And for me, this is my way of contributing and giving back. We had this discussion this morning and we were talking about how can we get the other affinity groups in the firm involved? So this is about inclusion. Why are we making this just about pride? Mm. And I thought that is the evolution of those conversations. It's just incredible. And it's incredible to be part of. So it's so important for me personally, but, you know, it's part and parcel of that, the, identity, the identity of what we're trying to promote in the yeah. market. Thank you for sharing that. I, I really appreciate it. I have in front of me your CV from 2013. Oh, man. <laughs> now, <laughs> if you recall, I said to you at the time that it was one of the best written and presented CVs I'd ever seen. And, and one of the reasons for that was that you had inserted your own quotations about your experience, but also plans that you had at that time. And I thought that was really quite sort of bold and confident. Now, I'm going to read these quotes back to you. Yeah. And, uh, and perhaps you can comment and tell me if they're still relevant. Sure. I'm, do I need a box of tissues or what's going to happen here? <laughs> so... Quote number one, I offer resilience, empathy, and flexibility to my employer and clients. That's absolutely true. Uh, and it's, I think these days, I don't know if that was a differentiator back then, if the last three years have taught us anything, 
you got to be flexible. <laughs> you have to yes. be empathetic. Uh, and yeah, I, and, and the resiliency is, uh, it's incredibly important. The, the more you go up the chain, so to speak, certainly. Very wise. Yes, you were. Um, <laughs> I quickly embrace new technology. That's definitely true. I mean, I guess as you get older, you kind of slow down. We're entering TikTok realm now. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating. You know, as you elevate in your career, you learn that you need to assemble savvy teams below you mm-hmm. uh, to keep up with things. Um, but I'm certainly, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an early adopter. That's for mm. sure. Okay. Juggling concurrent projects and delivering to deadlines energizes me. That's true. Uh, so if you think back, so many people were back at school. <laughs> I'd always on my report cards, it would be Kane is a very popular classmate, which means I was a clown and I was social. And I used to always wait till the last minute to do things. And I always find under pressure, you know, pressure makes diamonds or whatever the, the term is, I would always deliver some of my best work with that, that time crunch. You know, you never really get out of that habit i would always advise people start planning get working early and i you know i have a thousand self-help books that i have not read which all sit on my bedside to to tell me about you know the benefits of just you know taking little snippets of your day and dedicating them to the to the small tasks and just any movement is is good movement um yeah for me i i really do love the time crunch but you know as I said, you enter tumultuous times, particularly uh, with the market the way it is and the sheer pace of change with technology, with the media landscape, with the access to public statement for, for our people. So the, the risk and the exposure levels are so much higher. You have to just be on your game. And that pressure, I think, is a baseline now. So not to, uh, you know, not to make it, a little scary for people either entering entering the profession, but if you are wired in as such that you love the pressure, what a cool time to be in the industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. You said, I'm not afraid to step into the unknown. Yeah, I, I guess the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? Uh, I have really done a lot of work personally to back myself and to understand that things will always work out. And you can't, you, whilst you can fake it till you make it, when push comes to shove, I actually read a book, speaking of self-help books, <laughs> I'm reading a, a book at the moment called Too Perfect. I don't recall the author. And it's around perfectionism and how uh, it can be a barrier to success. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really stood out with me, this book I've had, mind you, for like three years, it was an early pandemic buy and I'm like 10 pages into it. Um, it's said, if you're used to just like really getting bogged down and making things absolutely perfect, give yourself a week of being a B minus student. So deliver everything at a B minus level. And then the kicker was, if you're an A student, that's going to show through anyway. And that is a really nice way to take the pressure off yourself while still sort of sticking to your own standards. And I think, uh, you know, long way of saying, yeah, that's, that's still certainly relevant. Very happy to step into the unknown. And then you had a bullet point on the top of page two, and it said, my next trip will be to New York. 
Wow. Wow. That is, yeah, you've got me. I'm glad we're not sharing a video. I'm tearing up. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I think that makes complete sense then. Quite yes. um, prophetic. It was written, Payne. It was, it was already written. It was um, already written. Now, one of the things that we do on deep CV diving is that we ask each guest to give us their favorite interview question. Our previous guest was Deborah Philippin, who is the CMO for Pinsent Masons in the APAC. And her question, which I'm going to ask you, was, can you describe a recent situation where you took the initiative to accomplish a goal? Wow, that is a wonderful one. It's a good question. I have a great answer to what my favorite question is. And it's just, it's more an anecdote. But uh, on that question, an example of where I took the initiative to achieve a goal. We, uh, there's so many. There is, how long have you got, right? Yeah, so just pick one recently. One. Like, what about <laughs> one this morning, Kate? What about one from this morning? <laughs> no, I've got one. I've got one recent, and that's quite a big one. Um, you know, we're on a growth strategy here in the Americas, and our annual partner meeting was uh, a month or so ago. And in the lead up uh, to that, um, you know, I'd been working with our leadership team to train them and to uh, to really be able to pre- present like TED Talk speakers, right? Because that is the gold standard, let's say, in, in the market. Now, the reason I mentioned that is, um, you know, a year ago, we had, uh, we recorded some content for climate change training. So in DC, I had a TV crew in doing a um, sort of a social media campaign and I used the crew to record this CLE session, like this this conference um, that we ran. Now, pretty dry topic, great speakers, it went well. And um, the projects group said, you know, we want to roll out more of these. So I pitched to them. The projects group was meeting in Copenhagen in July and I pitched to them, hey, why don't I come over with you? And um, we'll use the opportunity. We have 180 of our attorneys uh, in one location. Why don't we use that as an opportunity to shoot content? And let's do your TED Talks. I'll work with the team and I will train them up virtually to be able to step up on stage. And of course, I you know, sugarcoated and said, I can do all of this virtually if you don't have the budget to bring me over, et cetera. And sure enough, they're like, yeah, yeah you need to be there. Um, and I said to them, you know, Also, I'm going to set up a little studio in the conference facility and we're going to use that over the three days to get content for the next 12 months. So what we are doing now as a firm is looking at those events as opportunities to future-proof our our, uh, pipeline of content. Uh, And it's such a valuable use of time. There's investment there, but heck, it is so much more efficient than bringing a TV crew in or manually producing content whenever you think of it. It like it's really really critical and it's been great and one of the big things that um that we do as a team specifically here in the us is make sure we're working on on material uh and, and initiatives that we can then share back up to the network because we're all little sort of offshoots of the mothership so to speak mm-hmm. and um we don't have to re- reinvent the wheel all the time so we're always trying to we have a monthly global BCM, so brand comms marketing meeting, 
And um, we always aim to share one initiative with the global network. And that, that was a recent That's a great one. That's a great one. Cool. So what's, what's your favourite interview question? And we'll ask the next guest. Well, I, I always love the um, just tell us about yourself outside of work because I think you absolutely need to like the people that you work with and uh, you don't necessarily have to love them, but there has to be a, a level of sort of mutual respect and interest in you only really as we enter, we're re-entering the world of in-person meetings. Mm. Um, I'm really pleased to know that at Clever Chance we're we're getting back to meeting in person and, and and moving people around because you building those personal relationships, whether it be over a workshop over a couple of days or even drinks with your adjacent team in another office or location, those personal relationships, when push comes to shove and you need, you don't need any barriers to entry with um, with your colleagues. And, and, and that's a really important thing. So I love that question around, you know, what is it? Tell us about yourself, but outside of work completely. Mm-hmm. Now, I've got a question I've created, especially for you. Okay. It's my I'm last ready. question. It's my last oh. question. If you were to plan an event to celebrate your career to date, where would it be and what would it be? That is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. My heart at the moment is back with my team in Hong Kong, to be honest. And and, and that's not that I'm romanticizing or lamenting not being in Hong Kong. Um, I learned so much from that group. and, And I remember when I left, Hong Kong, uh, I don't like attention. And of course, the group all got together for a goodbye and gave me a wonderful gift. And um, one of the partners, actually the partner that had asked me if I wanted to be on the Arcus or the Arcus Allies list, he stood up and said, you really, truly do not understand the legacy that you've left. And he said, you know, you have taken us and pushed us and shoved us. And our new baseline is just so far forward. Um, and that really hit home with me. And I've been thinking a lot about legacy recently. And, um, so I think if I were to run it, if I was to host an event to celebrate my career, it would be on the 27th floor of Jardine house where Clifford Jardine is in their event space. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, (laughs) honestly, listen, if you were ever to set up a marketing agency yourself, I think you should call it Kane and Abel because you are I mean, you then should not just be in recruitment. That's exceptional. <laughs> That's your brand name. That's I how I give you, Kane and Abel. Thank you so much for being a great guest. I really look forward to the party. I love it, Graham. I mean, you'll get the first invite for sure. I, I really appreciate it. Look, I really do. Um, I love what you do, um, Graham. And, and I always reflect on, um, and I'll call it a relationship, um, my relationship and friendship with you. Um, you've been like, the most incredible mentor to me and that benefit of being able to shoot straight and tell me to pull my head in when when necessary it is like it is you know it's not that common and i i just wanted to acknowledge that i really of course you give me a shout anytime i think we could talk for hours we could thank you so much have a good week bye thank you take care